Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. This is our first episode in uh, it's not a it's not a relaunched podcast, but we're changing the changing the format a bit. Uh, we have a new we have new a new setup for the uh, co-hosts. As as those of you who listened to the last episode knew, that was the last episode with our former colleague David Tainter, who uh, took a job at the Independent British paper here, uh, uh, working from their New York office. So uh, now it is Kate and I as co-hosts of the Josh Marshall podcast. And uh, with that, we are we're making a, a few changes, some of which are, are behind the scenes and just sort of for our own convenience and changing the technical setup a little. Uh, we actually had a, a, some bumps in the road on that, which we will maybe get to in a moment. Uh, but in any case, we're going to, we're going to work in some other format changes, which we have wanted to do, but it's sort of a good launching off point now. And uh, one of those is, and we're going to mention this again at the end of the episode is we are going to start uh, answering your questions um, uh, for a listener to the Josh Marshall podcast. Now, those of you who are familiar with the website that publishes this podcast, uh, we do, you know, we have, we have always been very, uh, focused on and reliant on reader emails. We get tips, we get perspectives, we get, uh, you know, sometimes just uh, commentary, all sorts of different things, but it's a really a core part of our editorial process. So what we're going to start doing is, uh, if you have questions that you would like Kate or I to answer, or maybe uh, there are ones that we have to do a little reporting to to find out about, send us your questions. You you send them into the same email address that we that we use um, for the website, which is talk at talkingpointsmemo.com. Send them in, and we will we're gonna we're gonna have a part of the show where we answer those questions. So we're also. Uh, today we are going to talk about some things that we haven't, uh, talked about in recent episodes. One of those is this infrastructure bill, which is sort of this big thing looming over, uh, the political moment. And, uh, we haven't talked about it a lot because it is sort, it is both very important, but also slow moving. And uh, all news organizations, to some extent, but particularly us, we're 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 very focused on on kinetic stories, ones that are in motion, where what is happening today is not what was happening yesterday, and to kind of walk you through and update you on those changes and see how the changes change the big picture. Now, some of that is happening with the infrastructure bill, but. It's very different. It is, it, is, it is very big and it is very important. And one of the things 
this is something we can get into. One of the things that is weird about this political moment is you have uncertainties about what's coming next, and yet they don't turn on the normal drivers of political uncertainty. In this case, we know that absolutely no Republicans are going to vote for this bill. I mean, we don't know exactly how we're going to get there, but we know that's where we're going. We just know that. That is, an, that is like an absolute. At the same time, there doesn't seem to be a lot of disagreement among the 50 Senate Democrats who will need to pass this bill over what should be in it. There seems to be broad agreement about the basic scale, a couple trillion dollars, maybe a little bit here, a little, you know, little, little movement here or there. Uh, one of the things that probably will be uh, involve a lot of uh, negotiation is, this, is the climate-related stuff, since uh, particularly since so much of this rests on Joe Manchin. He's from a coal state. We know all that kind of stuff. But at, but at the end of the day, and, and I should say, you know, there's, there seems to be some disagreement. Should the corporate tax rate go from 21 to 28% or 21 to 25%? But these are relatively, relatively small differences. And so a lot of, a lot of what is propelling our politics forward now are these things that are, that are kind of opaque and not totally clear what is driving them. You know, a lot of it is this stuff about, you know, should it be bipartisan? Should it not be bipartisan? How much does it matter if it's bipartisan? Right? So that's one thing we're going to talk about. We're also going to talk about, um, you know, the, the, the constant thing that comes up again and again. Uh, the, the police killing of unarmed African-American motorists. Not always motorists, you know difference in, 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 in basic details, but you know what I'm, what I'm describing. And, and that came up not only in this, you know, horrific incident a few days ago in, uh, the greater, uh, you know, kind of a suburb of, of, of Minneapolis, but also because we had testimony yesterday for the nominee to head the civil rights division of the justice department. And that is a case that, you know, we tend to think, or I tend to focus largely on the voting rights dimension of that, but also policing, all of these things come under that. And there was a, a, a Kate is going to share with us some of what happened yesterday on that. But before we go any further, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast, even in this new uh, Brave New World, new format and new personnel that we have is still sponsored by the, the, sponsored by the Josh Marshall podcast. Sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Did anyone else assume, just kind of assume that spring wasn't going to happen? I, I felt that. It feels like time is both uh, on, on fast forward and not happening at all for me. Mm -hmm. Then one day, it just became spring. And here we all kind of do, we're doing spring stuff. That means tailgates, picnics, camping, cold brew. Seems so, some people are having a more adventurous <laughs> spring than, than I am. Uh, Grady, but in any case, Grady's all-in-one cold brew kit makes 36 servings of gourmet New Orleans-style coffee for less than a buck a cup. Just add water and store it in your fridge for cold brewed iced coffee you'll want to sip all spring. 
and be sure to take some on your next vacation, wherever you end up being, so you don't miss your morning brew. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, Kate, what's up? What are we talking about? So, uh, like you mentioned, Josh, you know, yesterday, um, I and our colleague Tierney Sneed was covering the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing for Kristen Clark, who's uh, nominated to be an associate AG in charge of Civil Rights Division. Um, And, you know, some of the GOP attacks on her were pretty predictable because they've been kind of digging in on these things even before it started. Um, And there is a a range of them, probably at the silliest end, you have um, a satirical piece that she wrote when she was an undergrad at Harvard, which did get brought up by one John Cornyn, who was very dedicated to his performance that he did not know what satire was. <laughs> I, I assume that's that's 20, 30 years ago. Should yeah. that be at least 40, right? He was 19. So <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, so this is a while ago, right, 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 probably something in the back in the 80s or something like that, or maybe early 90s. Right, and then the, but the main point of contention that came out for the Republicans is that she wrote an op-ed um, last year called Defund the Police, but Do It Strategically. The thrust of her argument was, you know, fairly innocuous and one that has been echoed by, uh, you know, a lot of kind of stakeholders in these conversations, which is, Um, instead of spending all this money on police departments, which ends up, you know, kind of militarizing them a lot of times, instead divert that money to other people who are better equipped to handle some of the stuff that right now just kind of gets all tossed into the police's lap because we don't have anybody else to deal with it. Um, You know, whether that be kind of mental health care and the whole infrastructure around that or, you know, social workers, um, that kind of thing. So that's the thrust of her argument. Yet, at at least five Republican senators in a row asked her, do you believe in defunding the police? Every time she said no, Uh, you know, they even got into the semantics of I didn't actually write the headline for that op-ed. You know, that was an editor at Newsweek. Um, And then you had Ted Cruz going through her op-ed line by line. And every time she kind of says anything about taking money away from the police, is yes or no? Did you say that? Is that correct? Did you say that? Uh, kind of prompting at one point, Durbin, Dick Durbin, who's the chairman of the committee, to step in and ask him to stop beating up the witness. Uh, and Ted Cruz uh, accused her of filibustering, saying he's asking simple yes or no questions. So, you know, Cruz always trying to get his little his little Fox News clip out of the hearing. Um, it does strike me as 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 much as. Um you you do have this you know kind of willful refusal to engage what people are actually talking about th- that you still have the kind of long hand of this fr- of this defund the police framing um that is it, it's it, there's a reason why republicans keep coming back to this phrase because it is damaging to Democrats, and it pushes people towards Republicans, even on an issue where most people, most of the electorate uh, supports 
reformist policies with regards to policing. Um, when you say, you know, and, 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 um, kind of in practice, what some people are saying when they say defund the police is fund, fund non-militarized methods of ensuring public safety as opposed to, you know, fund more of that, fund less of, of the kind of the militarized policing mode. Um, and you get sort of, I, I think there is actually, there, 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 are, if you listen to the gripes of people in the police community, if you take it out of this immediate debate, one of the big gripes for a long time has been, we're forced to kind of act as social workers. You know, we're, we're, we're called into cases that we're not really trained for, don't have, you know, kind of mediating between, a, you know, a couple that is have, you know, in a, in a, in a spousal fight, um, you know, come in, someone is in, uh, you know, acute mental health crisis. Uh, and so I, I actually think there is some consensus about, you know, it, it, th those are not situations that are helped by bringing in a couple guys, you know, guys, gals, uh, armed without a lot of training for people in acute mental health crises and things spin out of control. Um, that's even before you get into issues of implicit bias. That is just not a, that's a, that's not a great situation. And there are some, there are some places in the country where you have setups where you have a different group of people who are the first ones to show up in that, in that case. Um, and in a lot of cases that works. I mean, part of the, part of the defund the police thing is that it's treated as a zero sum. We're going to take money away from the police. We're going to give it to this other, other, you know, agency or, or whatever. Every, every agency, every department, every anything in government always reacts negatively to losing budget. That is just a universal thing about government. Um, so in any case, uh, and, and obviously when, when, when a lot of people hear the term defund the police, they think it means there aren't going to be police anymore. There aren't going to be police when when you think someone's breaking into your house. And, you know, when you say defund the police, that's not a that's not a crazy assumption. So uh, there's a lot of bad faith, but there's also a lot of, you, you know, picking a, a rhetorical framework that is that that leaves you needing to explain a lot right about what you really mean right yeah no i think so. that's, i think that's completely right but um you know it's also it kind of it reminds me of the gun debate and that republicans are so kind of dead set on interpreting any you know interpreting her op-ed interpreting any kind of arguments on the spectrum of reform as this is just simply deep on the police. This is an attack on our men and women in uniform. They risk their lives every day. How dare you? And because they take that kind of absolutist stance, there is just no debate to be had. Um, and, you know, it's just so dangerous because it, then it pits 
you know, you're either on the side of the police officers or you're on the side of the people that they're killing. And there's no, there's no like room in between, you know, for people who say, this is obviously a huge problem. We want to fix it. Maybe a way to fix it, you know, would help everyone take tasks that is not what these officers signed up to do off their plate, give them to people who are better equipped. And then in the meantime, you know, remove some of these things, remove the weapons, remove the warrior mentality, remove, you know, some of the issues of implicit bias. You know, you're doing all those things at once, but when it's been construed as this, you're on this side or you're on this side and there's no in between, what are you going to do with that? There's not, there's not going to be any legislation that comes out of that or any kind of agreed on, tactic to tackle it. Um, and that's kind of why it reminds me of the gun debate, because Republicans have positioned themselves so firmly, so absolutely on the idea that any at all infringement on gun rights is a violation of the Constitution, that there's just no common ground to be had. Um, you know, and it's the thing about it that I think is so infuriating is you have Republicans will say, of course, you know, after there's a massacre or after another unarmed black man is killed, you know, in public, they'll say, you know, this is awful. This is a tragedy. It's like, well, you may feel that on some level, but your legislative actions don't echo that even a little bit. You know, I mean, right now they can't even get the mansion to me background check bill past. You know, even that is too much of an infringement on gun rights. So I think it's just a reflection if you take these absolutist positions and there's just, that's not a good faith negotiating partner. You know, and we saw in Clark's hearing, it didn't matter how many times she explained herself, they weren't actually looking for her to clarify her position. They were looking to use this gotcha phrase. And, and you know, it, it really struck you because basically all the, all the Republicans on this committee are white men and you have them kind of like going after this nominee who is a black woman trying to paint her as this like radical anti-policing extremist. And it just fits well within that framework. You know, it's, you can be on the side of the police or you can be on the side of the black people who are dying. And they were just so eager to push her on that side, you know, and I'm sh- I'm sure part of that strategy is because she's black. So they're like, See, this is on the side she's on. And as Tom Cotton even said, he said, you know, law enforcement should be terrified from watching this hearing and hearing what you have to say, regardless of the fact that Clark, you know, has the backing of major law enforcement groups, um, you know, and that her, like we've laid out, her position on police department reform is not particularly radical. But, you know, I just think it felt so kind of, emotionally charged with the backdrop we have right now of, you know, the officer who killed George Floyd's on trial. We had Dante White be killed a few days ago, or Dante Wright, and um, the video of the the Black Army lieutenant getting pepper sprayed in his car. That happened, I think, back in December, but it has been making the rounds recently. So it's kind of like we have this these backdrop of these horrific things, and you're like, why does never nothing ever get done on this? And then you watch this committee hearing, and you're like, oh, that's why, because there, there's just no debate to be had. Well, it's also, I mean, I think, you know, re, re, as we've as we've seen from the the infrastructure issue that we're about to talk about, that on on those issues, Republicans don't have much footing. Yep. You know, Democrats are, 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 are pushing a bill that is by any but, you know, by any standard 
over the last few decades is like huge and involves a lot of deficit spending, even with the tax increase, you know, a tax increase, deficit spending, huge amounts of spending. And it seems to be really popular. So those, 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 um, that tells you that, you know, a, a lot of the basic, uh, footings that Republicans have navigated politics for, for decades aren't there anymore. And, and, uh, police, uh, you know, kind of polarized racial politics. These are issues that have, that, that still they feel have a lot of traction for them. So there's, there's not really any political incentive to it, it. It's, it doesn't in, in just a basic political calculus, it doesn't, serve their interest to try to um, solve these issues or even lower the heat right. on these issues. The polarization uh, works for them and and they are they are um, they are especially dependent on that because other things that used to have a lot more traction for them don't have a lot of traction at the moment. I mean you even see it with the way that even, you know, demonizing Joe Biden, the guy used to Hillary and, and Obama, mm-hmm. right? And kind of now they've got this sort of like, you know, kind of genial older white guy, and they just can't, they just can't get any get any footing. So whenever it's like you know police and police being terrified and you know urban gangs marauding through the suburbs and all this kind of stuff, they just that's just that's their footing, and they're gonna they're gonna. They're going to go for it at every opportunity. I think that's definitely right. And, you know, the Biden piece especially is interesting. Just kind of watch how the White House has handled, uh, you know, legislating. Because so much of what the Biden administration does seems to be directly informed by the Obama administration's experience. And, you know, that makes sense, of course. Biden was the vice president. A lot of the same people who are working for him now were working for the White House or White House adjacent then. Um, but... You know, I think that's totally right with the the inability to land a glove on Biden has been true, you know, since the campaign. And we kind of watched Trump and the Republicans cycle through these different pathways to attack him um, and just not getting much luck. You know, we from from sleepy, from he can't keep a thought in his head. He's losing his marbles to then, you know, the kind of QAnon tinted. He's a pedophile. He's touchy. He's gropey kind of thing. They just cycled through all of these and, you know, none of them really stuck more than a few new cycles. And I think that is just because, you know, he is a straight white Catholic man. So he doesn't present a threat to any of those kind of status quo things. And, he, and he's also older, older. Right. right. And his age in this sense is actually an advantage for him. I mean, not least because, you know, the Republican party demographically is old. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, the fact that he's an older guy, he's not, he's not the kind of the, you know, um, <laughs> I'm not even thinking what, what sort of, uh, um, uh, what kind of phrase to use, but he's not a young whippersnapper, <laughs> you know, changing the things that were back in the way they were back in the old days when I came up, he's older than you. 
right? I mean, the kind of the, the bedrock of Trumpism is not people who are 80. It's, it's people, embarrassingly, people more like my age, right? People who are like, who are 50 or people who, you know, kind of people in, in mi- middle age or into early old age, right? So Biden is like, I, they just, you know, they kind of, they can't really, they can't get they struggle to get a footing with him. And so you have this weird, um, this weird dynamic where they're constantly going after these basically black women on, you know, adjacent to him, mm-hmm. black women of color, you know, K- Kamala Harris, uh, Kristen Clark, uh, Neera Tanden, Vanita Gupta. Am I, yeah, uh, all the you know, kind of who are who are who are near to him, and who have in most you know, it's it, sometimes you do have a president who has one policy, and you appoint someone who is pretty far you know, more radical than they are, more left wing than they are, and most of these people aren't really any different. I mean, if anything, like Nero is more conservative than Biden, <laughs> you know, at least in his current incarnation, but they just have the kind of you know, they have like. Uh, some bizarro version of gaydar right <laughs> for the black women who are kind of near him that they can get some like oh very radical very not liking the police at all uh and, you know and that's and here we are which is so funny too because i think one of the early the earliest version of that was after biden tapped kamala harris to be like you know he's a, a senile meat puppet and she's gonna be pulling the strings which I think also didn't really work just because Harris had run in the middle of the pack. You know, it's not like she kind of campaigned on the, on the Bernie side of the highway. She was like nestled in there next to Biden and Meg right. Pete. So it's a little harder to portray right, her as right, crusading right. radical. <laughs> but it's also one of these things are, and, and this is, and this is, this is, this also gets to the, to the infrastructure issue that we have a lot of, um, a lot of things about our politics, particularly, you know, one of the novelties of the current moment is that we're seeing that on a lot of fiscal policy and taxing and spending, public seems to have a lot, you know, bring it on, mm-hmm. you know, build a million roads. Yep. Yep. Trillion dollars, $10 trillion. Yep. Sounds great. Sounds great. You're going to give me a check. Great. Also great. That a lot of our politics is we only move into the polarization zone when we're talking about the, you know, kind of demographic identity of the people involved. Um, And a lot of that is just a lot of the electorate not comfortable with women of color or any people of color, but it's not just that, right? It's not, it's not only that it's, it's you, um, it's something a little, it's a huge overlap, but it's not entirely that, that we, that, that in our current politics, we only kind of understand what these things mean or, um, impute intention or goals by who the people are who are pushing it. And that is, you know, in the current moment, you know, you have Joe Biden, late 70s, white guy, you know, 
<laughs> seems <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, just, oh, Joe Biden. He's, you know, kind of, he just, you know, he's kind of the guy who's going to, you know, get everybody to sit down at the table at the family picnic, right? <laughs> just, just you know, very hard for people to think, you know, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't have any bad secret motives here. He's just a, kind of a nice enough guy. Uh, but you put Kamala Harris, like, ooh, Kamala Harris. You know, what do you, what do you, what do you, what are you up to? You know, all this spending, transforming America. Uh, you know, this is the this is the politics we have. The Kamala Harris thing has been funny to me too, and this was more kind of relevant during the campaign when she was running. But Republicans could not decide if she hated cops and wanted to defund the police or if she herself was a cop who hated black people. It was like they could not figure right. it out. <laughs> well, that, that was the thing that you have this, you know, you, you, uh, you know, Republicans, as you say, they're kind of getting in on like, I mean, it's also in the way that like Trump, what we're talking about here, this idea that the younger, less white people are going to take away your country mm -hmm. and they're going to take away your country and make it different and bad. And they're going to make it in the cities and all, all that kind of stuff. That was the heart of Trumpism. You know, all the different, you have different arguments, but that's the heart of it. The, 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 the middle-aged white people that the, the new less white people are going to take away the country from them and have the country be in cities. And, and suddenly you're not going to be able to have anything to do in your exurb or in your rural area and everything will be terrible. <laughs> and they're going to send Antifa out there and uh, burn your house down. Um, that was the heart of Trumpism in various manifestations. And yet he also had this kind of side hustle doing criminal justice reform, right? sort of, you know, letting a few people out of jail and kind of playing that, that, that angle, uh, uh, you know, to try to mess thing, you know, kind of throw off Democrats and it, it's possible, you know, they're, they're, it, I, I don't think we, I think we're still trying to figure out exactly what happened um, in in the 2020 election when uh, obviously Trump did significantly better uh, in the Hispanic population and a bit better among African-Americans. I mean, I do think, um, you know, some of this stuff is he did pretty, pretty bad among African-Americans <laughs> in 2016. So kind of at some level, all, the only way to go is up. Right. Um, and also look it, it, the economy was doing really well and he was, you know, kind of Every every single moment, best African American is best Hispanic unemployment ever. All this kind of stuff, sending out checks, right? So I think those things may may be. But you know, the fact that he he did do something small but real on criminal justice reform, even though it kind of didn't really, you know, line up with everything else he was doing. That probably had some, you know, probably had some effect. Right. Definitely. Who knows how much, but some effect. Yeah. So, you know, we have been talking about it kind of uh, tangentially, but we did want to get to the infrastructure package today, which now uh, Congress returned from recess early this week. 
And, you know, it's going to be the big legislative push for the foreseeable future. We have Pelosi saying she wants it through the House by the 4th of July, which means the next few months are just me chock full of, you know, committee work, jockeying for each, you know, members kind of specific uh, projects and priorities to get in there. Um, You know, we're starting to have some early like line drawing in the sand from various groups. Um, You know, this is just a time where I think it makes sense for everyone to kind of be like, if you don't solve my problem, I'm going to, I'm going to be the problem. I'm going to hold up this bill. And I think there's been a lot of kind of very credulous headlines saying, you know, these so-and-sos are going to sink the bill unless X, Y, Z. And it's, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they will, but we are so early in the process and it just, it makes sense for people to want, want that dynamic to, you know, be out there. Right. Right. And, and, and this goes back to something I was saying before, this is all among Democrats. Yeah. This entire, this entire conversation is among Democrats. I mean, Republicans are kind of, sort of doing it, but it doesn't matter since everybody knows that there will be no Republicans who support this. So their threat of I'm not going to support it unless X is kind of meaningless. Whereas obviously you basically need every Democrat. I mean, you've got a, you know, you could lose three or four people maybe in the house, but you basically need every Democrat. And and that, so this does get to, again, the oddity of the political moment. Because so let's think about this. We're talking about she's saying she wants it through the House, which is probably it's going to go first through the House by, you know, July 2nd. We're in April. So what? That's three months. Am I not great at math? Uh, May, June, July. Yeah. Three, you know, three months from now, three plus months. No, less than three. More like two and a half. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Two and a half. Almost three months. Um, So. That kind of uh, makes me wonder, like, okay, what if if that's a fast timeline? What are we going to do? What 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 do you, what is there to decide? I mean, you know, Biden has his plan up there. You know, he has his plan. We know Republicans aren't going to support it. We know that there's broad support for it among Democrats, even though you get down to the the nitty gritty of probably uh, you know that phrase a bit. So what exactly are we doing for the next three months? Yeah. I mean, not rhetorically, like literally, what are, what are they doing? What is that? What is, what's going to happen over that period? Well, something that's been striking about the conversation to me so far is that both the administration and democratic leaders in Congress have been very reluctant to kind of play ball on the specifics of the package, even things like, you know, there was some, there's been some talk about it being split into two and about doing more, you know, kind of roads and bridges stuff in the first package and the more people centric stuff in the second package. But I mean, today at her presser, Nancy Pelosi wouldn't even really commit to whether the package is going to be broken up or not. Um, You know, there's just been, I think, I think there's an interest in keeping things broad strokes right now, because because like we said, it's really important for Democrats to stay unified on this, obviously, due to the slim margins. And I think some a lesson that they might have learned from the COVID relief package is the urgency that infused that process just worked wonders in keeping the caucus in such lockstep because everyone felt like this is really important. We need to get it out the door as quick as possible. And that kind of has an effect, I think, on 
deflating a little bit the usual kind of jockeying that happens in these pro in this process and you know did a a pretty good job in keeping everybody together so i think here and i'm sure there this the specific haggling has already begun kind of behind the scenes but i think right now democratic leaders kind of have a vested interest in saying we're working on you know big, bold infrastructure reform. Here are some of our most important priorities in it. And, you know, and we're, we're nailing down the logistics. We're getting to it. But kind of, they seem right now, at least, to be trying to push off the inevitable arguments that are going to happen about the kind of specific pieces of it. And then meanwhile, I think that also allows them to, like, you know, have the White House meetings with Susan Collins and say, you know, we'd love to do this in a bipartisan way, but, you know, We'll see if Republicans will cooperate, you know, even though we all pretty much know this is this is going through reconciliation, you know. Well, here, here's the question I have, though. It, like, is that going to come out in and I think the answer is this no is no. Is that going to come out, you know, when they get down to that nitty gritty? Mm-hmm. Is that going to come out in committee hearings? Um, and then the the other question is how I mean, we. You read the headlines, you know that, okay, Joe Biden's got this plan and includes this much money for this and this much money for the other. I guess the idea is, is that it just, it, it's still, the, the plan is, at a, it is still at a fairly high degree of generality. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, if, if you're talking about, um, you know, $300 million for, you know, to transition to cleaner, you know, transition away from fossil fuels, or did I say million, you know, $300 billion, you still got to fill in like, okay, what exactly are you going to do with the money? Who's going to get it? What, where's it going to go? You know, what States is it going to go to? Is it going to go, you know, is it all going to go to getting rid of coal? Is some of it going to go to phasing away from, uh, uh, you know, uh, natural gas, you know, there's all the kind of different. And again, I keep coming back to this is that sort of, the same way it is with are we getting rid of the filibuster or not are we doing the you know hr1 democracy bill or not it it seems you know there's there's these big questions but we don't have a strong sense we being the uh you know voters people trying to figure out what's going on or in this case just me I don't have a big sense of kind of like, okay, what is, what are the details or disagreements that we need to hash out before July 4th right. and who, like whose side am I supposed to, whose side do I want to be on? Right. Is it, is, is there one faction that is, that wants it to be bigger than not? Or is there one faction that wants you know, wants it only to be or mostly to be sort of traditional roads and bridges versus, you know, caring economy. It's all just, again, it's just like everything in this moment. It just seems very opaque to me. I think that's totally right. And, you know, the opaqueness of this process does kind of feel to me like how, you know, the relief plan was, which it almost felt like we were learning about some big things that were in it as it was passing, even after it passed, you know, it was just, it, it went right, really fast. Right. It was really big. And I think a lot of focus got put on certain 
parts of it, like uh, the unemployment insurance, you know, obviously that drew a lot of attention because the benefits cliff was one of the reasons it had to move so quickly. But then we only found out about other measures like, you know, there weren't that many headlines even about the child tax credit, which was arguably the most revolutionary piece of that bill. Um, but, you know, I it does make me wonder if that's not how Democrats liked it. You know, they got it together. They got it out the door. They kept their caucus unified. It made it hard for Republicans to attack it because it is so big and um, multifaceted. And then afterwards, they can say, hey, look at all this awesome stuff we just passed. Boom, boom, boom. You're welcome. You know, enjoy the free money kind of thing. Yeah, I I, I guess that I, I guess the thing is, though, is that 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 works better, makes more sense when you're kind of getting it through in two or three weeks. Right. True. You're just, you know, you, you kind of, and the, the calculus there is, look, we've got the votes. We need to, you know, move through this or that, um, uh, you know, procedural stuff, but let's not screw with success. we got the votes now. We can only get less votes. We're not going to get more. So let's just plow forward, not complicate this by getting into the nitty gritty. But that, that turns out to be a little different if you're talking about three months. Right. Right. Um, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, partly this may be just a, 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 a dynamic where you have total polarization, where things are only really happening within one party. There's no, you know, there's no horse trading between the parties, and um, and and j- j- just that, right? Yeah. And 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 that the margins are so are so small for the party that's going to have to do it. I mean, if you had, like, let's say, if you had, you know, sixty five Democratic votes, or you know, and and sixty five percent of the House, in that case, it would be entirely plausible that's that some people are going to say nope i'm not gonna i'm not i can't support it because it didn't get enough of the stuff that i need but here you know that everyone has to support it and so your threat to not support it if you don't get what you want sort of as you were saying before kate it makes sense you're gonna say that but we know you can't really follow through because you can't you just, you just can't tor- torpedo the whole thing. And if you don't support it, you're torpedoing the whole thing. I mean, one thing that um, uh, I have heard about is that most of the New York delegation has signed on with this thing about the SALT tag. This is basically that in the old days, you could deduct, I don't know if it's most, all. Basically, y- you could, y- you didn't have to. For federal taxes, you could deduct the taxes you paid in your state. So if you're from a relatively high tax state, that's important. And the 2017 um, uh, Trump tax cut basically is a gotcha to the blue states, got rid of that, which really was a, was a pretty big hit for especially wealthy people in those states, but even to you know reaching pretty far down into the middle class. Basically, not a lot, but significant, you know, but you really were taking some level of hit. And uh, the New York delegation is basically saying, you got to reverse this or we're not, you know, we're not there. And I think it's like AOC and one other person who are the only ones who aren't mm-hmm. making that pledge. But again, 
are you really going to torpedo the whole thing? I doubt it. I doubt it. So it's all kind of, it all ends up being shadow boxing. And again, I mean, I, I know that I keep coming back to this, that, that th this politics of opaqueness, mm -hmm. that everything happening right now is, you know, sort of like with the filibuster. It's so consequential. It's, you know, you can do, you can do infrastructure with this reconciliation stuff and maybe you can do two infrastructures with it. But that's it. You, you're never going to be able to do a voting rights bill with it. That's just not how it works. So you've got this thing that is hugely consequential. If, if you can get past this hump, there's a ton of stuff you can do. And if not, not. And is it going to happen? Well, God, not only do I not know, but I don't even know what the moving parts are. Other than kind of like, is it just, it, does Joe Manchin know the answer to this question? He's not telling us. <laughs> it's entirely possible, right? Um, or is it kind of like whether he has porridge or bacon and eggs in the morning? It, like <laughs> it's just you just don't know, and that again, it just creates this 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 politics of opaqueness, which is the, it is the really to me the sort of the overriding uh, political dynamic of the Biden era so far. It's not the policy dynamic. The policy dynamic is a heavy move back towards, um, you know, more traditional, liberal, um, mixed economy, generous social spending bubble. That's the policy. Side. But the politics side, again, is this politics of opaqueness. Right. And for a politics of much more transparency, we have the GOP reaction to the infrastructure bill, um, a lot of which is encapsulated with a, a caucus memo from the Senate that came out earlier this week that kind of uh, gave a list of talking points of how to oppose this bill, um, largely which was focused on it being kind of a, a democratic slush fund of different, you know, scare quote priorities like, you know, un unlimited spending on green energy kind of thing. Um, but, you know, we actually have a, a clip we wanted to play that came in from the Hill pool of uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who kind of uh, neatly encapsulates, I guess, the, the GOP kind of stance that they've taken in opposition to this package. Well, um, the Republicans need to put their counterproposals on the table. I haven't heard a pay for from a Republican yet. Uh, and I haven't heard uh, their explanation of why, of what they think we don't need in terms of rebuilding our infrastructure. Uh, talking points are not the same as a real negotiation. I was saying before we went on the air that I, I took away some on the policy front from this, but I, the overriding thing was what I take to be Elizabeth Warren's shoes, <laughs> right? In the, in the, uh, in the, you hear that, you hear that clomping, clomping, clomping. Anyway. <laughs> no, I, good message. And that if you don't have really good ears, Capitol Hill reporting can be a little bit tricky, especially in this masked era. Yeah, but, definitely, uh, definitely, definitely. I, I just thought that was kind of instructive because I think it encapsulates the whole way Democrats are, approaching the Republican obstruction now, which is very different from the Obama era. You know, it's it's less, oh, you say the bill is too big. 
you know, it's, it's bad for the deficit. Okay, fine. So we'll, we'll go smaller kind of thing. And now it's, oh, you think the bill is too big? Okay, how do you want to pay for it? You know, like, you don't like the corporate tax hike? Okay, what's your counter suggestion? I think it's just a, a much more aggressive posture. And I know Republicans have kind of been like complaining about it as like a refusal to be bipartisan, but it's not a refusal to be bipartisan. It's honestly a refusal to be ruled by the whims of the minority who's only interested in, you know, saying no and offering no counter proposal. So I think that kind of that posture has been effective for Democrats so far. Well, I think and more concretely, when you take there's two things that you take them out of the equation that things become very different. One is if you take out of the equation any expectation that any Republican is going to vote for any of this, that changes a lot because who cares what you say? I know you're not going to support it. So like whatever. And that was very different in in 2009, you know, not just 2009, it kind of came up again after, in 2013 with, you know, comprehensive immigration reform, blah, 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 blah. If you take that out, and if you also take out the basic idea that additional spending, additional deficit spending is a big bad thing that has to be corrected in fairly short order. And we're just not, I mean, that was, you know, that was the sort of the governing thing in, uh, in, in 2009, it came up in a different way with Obamacare and Democrats have just totally jettisoned that. I mean, they're kind of, um, a little non jettisoning it, jettisoning it with, uh, you know, raising corporate tax rates, but, that's a way that wasn't that, that wasn't it before. It was also where, it was always you know where are you going to cut spending, where are you going to have a grand bargain on Social Security and Medicare. You take those two things out, and there's just not much to talk about. You right. know, it kind of it 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 yes, it's much more aggressive, but that makes everything much more aggressive. If if the two things you're if if the two traction points that the opposition party is working with, you just say those don't matter. Right. Well, and I think to some degree too, the Republican Party has just kind of morphed away from the the deficit hawk thing. Not to say that they don't bring it up as a point of argument. They definitely do. Like wasteful spending, slushed fund, pork barrel, definitely still comes up. But clearly, as we kind of talked about at the beginning with the defund the police thing. Republicans right now are looking for ammo in the culture war. You know, that's why Republican leadership spent about two weeks on the estate of Dr. Seuss. So something like complaining about the deficit just doesn't seem to kind of have the same traction with the Trumpified constituency than it did before. So they need to kind of find something else to object to, um, something that kind of fits into that framework better. And I think we saw they were never really able to do that very well with the COVID relief plan. And then this time around, we've already kind of seen the pitfalls of just all out opposition to the bill without kind of homing in on everything. Um, You know, the big example of that, I think, was Marsha Blackburn was tweeting out these series of like graphics that said, oh, is this infrastructure? That's kind of been their big thing, a semantic discussion on what is and isn't infrastructure. But one of her slides that got ratioed to absolute death said, um, you know, 
is this what Joe Biden thinks is infrastructure and said something like $400 billion to elder care, which of course everyone in the entire world made fun of her for, because it's, you know, how, how dare we help this very vulnerable and often mistreated population, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I guess it's, one question that is interesting to me is how much of it is that, you know, kind of deficit hawkery is just has less traction with with Republicans own supporters? Mm-hmm. Or is it that the whole dynamic was that Democrats engaged that discourse, for lack of a better word? And I think a lot of it is that yeah. it was it was. In many ways, not so much that there was like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of policy agitation among Republicans about deficit spending. I mean, obviously not, since deficit <laughs> spending all universally goes up a lot under Republicans. It was just that it it d- Democrats engaged in it, and and as is often the case when you are trolling someone or trying to get someone, you know, get in someone's face, if they engage with you, you know, it's, it's, it's like ignore the trolls on Twitter, right? If you, if, if you engage, then, then you're off and running. And if you don't engage kind of it, what is, you know, what, what is there to say? Yeah. So anyway, um, that is where we are on infrastructure. Yep. And, uh, you know, we will definitely be talking about this more in the future. This, it's going to be, a, you know, a big kind of central thing, even if the Senate does take up other bills in the meantime, um, including, you know, ones that might put some focus back on the filibuster, which it, it's not totally clear to me just because right, I, right. I think if you're coming at it from a perspective of hoping to get the caucus in favor of at least reforming the filibuster, I don't know if the best way to do that is while you're working on infrastructure behind the scenes, just because it seems to me to kind of lessen the pressure. Because if you do it post infrastructure, then it's like, there's nothing else to do. This is our only pathway to legislate and it's being blocked by the filibuster. What are we going to do about it? But, you know, pre-recess, Schumer promised that he was going to bring the bills onto the floor when they got back. So, you know, we'll be keeping an eye on that dynamic as well, because the filibuster will rear its head at some point um, in these, you know, next couple of years. I was thinking we should maybe, I don't know, bring someone on or maybe you can talk with one of the senators up there. I I know kind of in the outlines, but it's still I I think it would be helpful. It would be helpful for me. I think it it would certainly be helpful for our listeners. Why is it exactly you can't work on infrastructure and HR1 at the same time? It's a big Senate, right? Different people can be meeting about different things at different times. Um, so I, I'm not saying there's no reason, but I think it would be helpful to get a little more understanding of why is that? Why, why you know, why can there only be one thing, you know, one thing getting the focus at at one time, especially when the country is in, you know, kind of a big crisis. And certainly uh, Democrats are under a lot of pressure to do a lot of stuff. So it'd be, be interesting to find out more of that. But I guess we we need to talk about the big issue in the country, which is our new answering listener questions segment. 
<laughs> which I which I guess we're going to talk about now to remind everybody. Right. Yeah. So I, Josh uh, introduced this well at the beginning of the show, just to you know remind you that if you're a listener or if you know people who are readers but not listeners, um, you know, and you have questions you want us to discuss or look into, email us at, at talk at talkingpointsmemo.com. Try to put something podcast related in the subject line uh, so we see it because you know we get a lot of stuff there. And um, Josh and I will dig into some of those and address them on the next episode. Yeah. And remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. All right. Talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Later. Later.